Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. I was doing some reading online reading about healthy and unhealthy groups specifically religious groups and and what religious groups do to provide a safe and healthy environment versus what groups do when they provide an unsafe and an unhealthy environment as i was doing reading i'm talking i'm going into 30 40 different web pages i'm reading different blog posts and documents and I noticed that there was a certain document that came up multiple times. And this document had three lists on it. The list were 10 warning signs of a potentially unsafe group or leader. It then went into 10 warning signs regarding people involved in or with a potentially unsafe group or leader. And then it finished up with 10 signs of a safe group or leader. And to be honest, I just got really sad as I went through this list. And I want to go through it with you today. And and I know I've done episodes where I've been critical of something a leader has said, that I've tried to show why that just doesn't make sense, why it doesn't fit, why it's why it's too simplistic and it just doesn't really work when one delves into deeper ideas. And I know that some of those episodes have come off as very critical. My my fear is that doing an episode like this is that it's going to come off as uber critical. But I want to preface it, and, and I'll try. I will I will try my best to add balance and to recognize that that there are also things that happen within the church that go with each of these in a positive way. And I'll I'll try to draw attention to those when I can. I'm also hoping, uh, I haven't, haven't planned it out yet. I'm hoping to add some sound bites in where, where we have the leader on audio saying the point that I'm making. So I hope to mix it up a little bit by adding that in. But I, I want to preface this with those things, but also just saying like, as we go through this and as I go through each of these points, like, let's just be honest. Let's just be, let's be vulnerable and let's just acknowledge if if these really are healthy or unhealthy signs, and then can we also just go one step further? Can we just validate whether we as a church are doing these or not? And and if and if we are, can we can we make an effort to do better? And I should also add that throughout all of this reading, the 30, 40 web pages, blog posts, articles, you know, definitions of words that I wanted to, as I did the research on this, and it, and it didn't start off as an episode, it just started off with me as always just picking something that interests me at the moment and going off and, and reading as much as I can and trying to kind of just delve as deep into certain subjects as I, as I possibly can get to. In, in the process of doing that, the, the word cult 
came up throughout my time studying and researching into this. And, and we just, again, can we just pause for a moment and, and not take offense and not feel like this is, this is drawing some critical line in the sand. We're like, I can't believe Bill, you said that. Like, can we just stop for a second and say, you know what, if we're all honest with each other, we do some things as a culture and as an institution that, that fit the bill of the things that a cult does. And if, and I'm using that word in a negative way. I'm not, I mean, we can, we can soften it. We can fluff it up. We can make that word look really pretty, at least prettier than, than normal. But if I use that word in the worst sense of the word, can we validate that some of the things we do as a church, as a culture and deeply within our institution are things that, that you would find among leaders in groups that 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 have a, a really deep harmful effect on its members. So with that, let's let's jump into this. Let's begin with the 10 warning signs of a potentially unsafe group or leader. Number 1. And again, each of these 10 points as well as the other 10 and 10 that I'm going to go into, these are not things I've created. I will share several links where these ideas are discussed at length. And, and it's not just one group that's saying, Hey, these are, these are warning signs, but rather this is a multiple multitude of groups and organizations who are saying, these are the warning signs of an unsafe group or leader and the people who follow and belong to those groups and leaders. Number one, absolute authoritarianism without meaningful accountability. And so can we just stop here for a second? And again, you can take my words beyond the mark if you want to, but but I, I'm hoping that individuals who listen to this episode can can just like not make this personal and just step back for a moment and and try to say, look, is this really a negative? And if it is, do we really do it? And if we do, just validate that. Just sit with it and just say, man, you know what? If if I don't feel, I mean, I feel defensive, but I'm going to set that aside. Is this really a warning sign, a negative thing, and and does my religious faith do it? And so with this number one of absolute authoritarianism without meaningful accountability, let's talk about that for a moment. What kind of checks and balances is there for the top 15 leaders of the church? Right? I mean, we already know, like, that these men that we that we name prophets, seers, and revelators, whom whom we raise our hand to sustain in those offices, is there any real checks and balances outside of those 15? I get that they will check and balance themselves, but I think, again, if we look at this logically and reasonably, any group of leadership that only checks and balances themselves, that's there's a lot of risk there, a lot of risk for things to go awry. And, and the other point I want to make is like lower level leaders, bishops and stake presidents, they're going to almost always show deference to the higher leadership. In other words, if, if I raise my hand in general conference in a dissenting vote, Elder Uchtdorf, for example, has said in the last, I think, two conferences, something to the effect of, and one of these is an exact quote, brothers and sisters, President Monson asked me to mention that. Since a few opposing votes were noted, we invite those with opposing votes to contact their stake presidents for further questions or answers. 
Thank you. And, and the trouble with such a thing, right, is that you, you raise a hand in dissent. You have a real concern. There's really something wrong going on. And you go back to your bishop or your stake president and you raise that concern. Even if that concern is valid, it will not be taken seriously. My guess would be 95% of the time that, that lower level leaders go out of their way to please and to look good for upper level leaders. That no stake president is going to go back to the 15 and say, this guy's got a point. You guys are doing something wrong. That's just not going to happen. And I'm sure it does. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all. It's just not going to happen generally. That all things being equal, assuming that this person has a really valid concern and the church is doing something inappropriate, a bishop or stake president is going to show deference to the higher leadership. And there's, there's really little space to raise real concerns, right? I mean, I mean, the, we're told as members, you go to your bishop and if he can't take care of your question, then you ask your stake presidency. And if they can't solve your problem, then you talk to an area authority. And if they can't solve your problem, you talk to a member of the 70. And if they can't solve your problem, then you go to the quorum of the 12 and then the first presidency. But let's be honest. I mean, as you go through each of those steps, especially, Especially knowing that, that these people are all going to, as they show deference to higher leadership, make you feel as if you need to stop bothering them with these things. And if you go straight to the top, I've heard so many stories of people sending your questions and your concerns right back to the local leader, which sometimes it's the local leader that you have the issue with. It's them doing something inappropriate and, and someone at top leadership sends that letter right back to the leader that you have got a concern about. There just isn't a safe space. And, and let's like, let's play the other side of this coin. Like, show me where the accountability is. Where is it? Like, like, like just write me, send me an email and say, Bill, we've got accountability. This is how it works. And, and I mean, honest accountability, meaningful accountability. And it doesn't exist And the, the balance back to that is, Hey, Bill, these are the men that God has called. What, what right do you have to call anything they do into question? That's not your stewardship, but that sidesteps the issue. And so I hope that we can recognize that there truly is within Mormonism, absolute authoritarianism without meaningful accountability. Number two, there's no tolerance for questions or critical inquiry. Again, these are not my statements. Number two, there is no tolerance for questions or critical inquiry. For instance, Elder Oaks recently said this. Some of this opposition even comes from church members. Some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there's no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom, where questions are honored, but opposition is not. And, and I've already, we've already hit on this at length, but, but it has to be talked about. It has to be stated that, that people in the church are happy and willing to answer questions that have faithful answers. But when the question has an answer, but that answer is not faithful. When the question 
is is going to push somebody to recognize that that the church has perhaps been on unsafe ground at, at times those questions are avoided at all cost and the person who is asking the question is now considered to be somebody in loyal opposition and they're only in loyal opposition because they're in, they're keep asking these questions and they're wanting answers and nobody in official channels wants to touch these it's easy for elder oaks to say questions are honored it's another thing altogether to actually answer or attempt to answer or admit you don't have good answers to specific questions rather than just avoid them. And and this isn't the first time this has been said. We've got leaders on the record saying, do not criticize. This is Elder Oaks as well. Do not criticize leaders, even if the criticism is true. Again, a warning sign of a potentially unsafe group or leader is that there is no tolerance for questions or critical inquiry. So ask yourself, in your ward, in your stake, in the church, is there safe space to ask questions and to have critical inquiry? And and again, there's lots of these. Elder McConkie writes Eugene England and tells him it is his job to essentially reiterate what, what Elder McConkie teaches and says or to remain silent. You see that? There's just not. You show me leaders who, one, say that questions are welcome and honored, but then, number two, follow that up by openly answering those questions. And even if that admits, like, we don't know. Like, if I say, hey, brethren, is the priesthood ban that ended in 78, was that from God or wasn't it? Even for them to just say, I don't know, would be better than just avoiding it, which is what the church does on any question it doesn't want to answer. Any question that's going to lead you or me to recognize that things are not the way they were taught to us, they are going to stop short of wanting to answer that question. And so we can give lip service to tough questions and critical uh, critical inquiry, but will we really walk the walk when the tires hit the road? Number three, again, warning signs of a potentially unsafe group or leader. Number three, no meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget expenses such as an independently audited financial statement. So I ask, is is there any transparency of finances in the church? Again, it's a warning sign of a potentially unsafe group or leader that there is no meaningful financial disclosure. Again, the word meaningful, because the church does do a financial disclosure, except it just doesn't disclose anything. It just tells us to trust it, that it's doing everything appropriately, and let's move on to the next thing. Meaningful financial disclosure actually discloses the finances, and we don't have that in our church. Did you guys know that the church owns more land in the United States than any other entity outside of the U.S. government? And we look at things like City Creek and these land deals in Florida. Um, Newsweek several years ago did a thing on the, the business arms of the church you know, how much do our leaders make? These are all questions we want to talk about and ask about, but there's nothing. There is no financial transparency. Again, the church can do that or not do that. We can debate whether it's evil or not, whether it's good or not, if it's appropriate or not. But the point is that, that several entities trying to help us understand what are the warning signs of a potentially safe or unsafe group or leader point to meaningful financial disclosure being important to a safe group or leader. And I asked, does the church do that? Again, step back. Don't don't be defensive. Say, look, is is financial transparency a sign 
of a healthy group or leader? And the second question is, do we fall, unfortunately, in with this unsafe warning sign? Number four, unreasonable fear about the outside world, such as impending catastrophe, evil conspiracies, and persecutions. Look, we've had this throughout our church. And and to be honest, in defense of the church, much of Christianity has had this. But I can't, I can't go into a priesthood lesson without the high priest telling me the world's going to hell. It's the last days. It's the wrapping up scene. And you even have leaders doing this as well. You, you have manuals. You've got the Brigham Young manual you used several years ago. It talks about the last days and talks about all the atrocities that shall be on the earth. You've got Elder Nelson in a recent CES fireside. He says, you are living in the 11th hour. The Lord has declared that this is the last time he will call his laborers into his vineyard to gather the elect from the four quarters of the earth. And when you take those ideas in that quote and you go back into Mormonism and you start studying what the last days are and what it means, it is it is to a T that, yeah, sure, the church is on the earth and positive things are happening, but generally the world is becoming a really bad place. And And so there's this idea that we scare people. You know, we are the true church and we're calling everybody in and this is this is the 11th hour. We scare people to death. And the reality is when you look at all the indicators that sure, there's problems and some problems are growing, but so many things are so much better today than they were 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 150 years ago or 500 years ago. People can read. There's better health care. People have better jobs. People have uh, report more happiness in their life. When you look at the world in general, there are less people starving to death. There are more people able to to live a life with joy within it. And and so I just think it's unfair to say that that the world is going to hell in a handbasket when when that's not necessarily the case, but but certainly our religion, our faith teaches that and talks about that. And I think if you went to any believing Orthodox Latter-day Saint and you said, describe to me the last days, I am almost guaranteeing to a T the negative would far outweigh the positive. And we would say that, look, we are in those last days. And and to a T, almost every one of them would say the world is getting worse. It's this, it's this fear created within us that the world is going to get really, really bad. And thank goodness we're on the right team and we're in the right place. And all that does is make it us versus them when it comes to those in the church and those out of it. Number five, there is no legitimate reason to leave. Former followers are always wrong in leaving. They are negative or even evil. And and we've got lessons that point to this. I was just in a lesson last Sunday. It was the Book of Mormon Gospel Doctrine class where they talked about Alma the Younger and the Sons of Mosiah and and how they were unbelievers. And then all the questions in the manual point us to talk about those unbelievers and to talk about them in a negative way. Let me ask you, can you find me any Orthodox Latter-day Saint who publicly talks about the fact that there's good reasons, valid reasons, authentic reasons to leave Mormonism? And the only one I can come up with is Elder Uchtdorf when he says this. However... There are some who leave the church they once loved. One might ask, if the gospel is so wonderful, why would anyone leave? 
Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it is not that simple. In fact, there is not just one reason that applies to the variety of situations. Some of our dear members struggle for years with the question whether they should separate themselves from the church. In this church that honors personal agency so strongly, that was restored by a young men who asked questions and sought answers, we respect those who honestly search for truth. It may break our hearts when their journey takes them away from the church we love and the truth we have found. But we honor their right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own conscience, just as we claim the privilege for ourselves. That's it. That's the closest we come to saying, look, there are, there are good reasons for people to leave. There are valid reasons. Our history is messy. We have, we have a history that is full of contradictions and paradoxes. And to be frank, we have some things that just simply don't add up in our present view. And, and also our church has certain stances on social issues that absolutely we validate that good people can be emotionally harmed by. But we don't do that. Instead, we paint anybody who leaves the church as a negative. We paint them as, as apostate. We paint them as perhaps evil. We paint them as lost or having gone astray, as being deceived by the adversary. Why not just back up? And say, man, there's a lot of different viewpoints out there. There's a lot of things going on, and some of these things we're not doing so well. And it's it's absolutely reasonable and valid for some people to see the negative as far outweighing the positive, and not and not that they're not bad for not wanting to stay in, in spite of being harmed or hurt. Again, number five, there's no legitimate reason to leave. Former followers are always wrong in leaving. They're negative or even evil. I wish. I mean, again, Uchtdorf's the closest to come to it when he says that some have made mistakes and those mistakes may have violated, among other things, doctrines. But no one in an official position validates outside of that that our history and theology is really messy. It has real, serious contradictions. Nobody does that. And and when you don't do that, then folks who leave, you think it's just silly they're leaving. They're just weaker than you are. They were just offended by somebody. They just want to sin. Instead of coming up with reasons why they did it that placed the blame on them, I think a sign of a really mature faith is when it's willing to place the blame on itself and say, look, we caused some of this. Number six, former members often relate the same stories of abuse and reflect similar patterns of grievances. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. You can go to any ex-Mormon discussion board. You can talk to any group of Latter-day Saints, ex-Latter-day Saints who have left the church or some who perhaps have just emotionally checked out. And you'll find that Mormonism is one of the groups within the world that has the most, the largest voice of dissenters. That when people leave their Methodist church, they just leave. They just go on to something else. Whereas when Mormons leave the LDS church, and it's for a whole lot of reasons, and these reasons have some validity to them as well, that Mormons tend to group up together 
and to continue to voice their concerns and grievances. And you can find that all throughout the internet and in the real world um, outside of the, the blogger knackle as well. Number seven, again, these are the top 10 warning signs of a potentially unsafe group or leader. Number seven, there are records, books, news articles, or television programs that document the abuses of the group or leader. Again, we have this persecution complex. We, we like to say that, look, man, we're the true church. And what do you expect other than, than Mormonism to be persecuted because it has the truth? That's the easy step for us as believers to do. But what it does is it fails to have us actually step out of our own shoes for a second and actually look at why people feel this way. Why are people this dead set on speaking out against Mormonism? There's a lot of time spent on those who are disillusioned or on the outside documenting the ills of Mormonism. Mormons have a persecution complex. And and we wear this as a badge of honor. But one must ask if there's any truth to the criticisms these groups, the the criticisms that they're making. Why why does Mormonism get so much criticism? And if and if you're going to argue it's a sign that you're right and Satan is working against you, then Jehovah Witnesses, Scientology, Muslim extremists, all of those guys probably have as much or more truth than you do. It's not a valid reason. It's easy when you're on the inside to say, yeah, it's just because because the adversary is helping these people and he's feeding them their thoughts. And, and man, what do you expect but us to be persecuted? But the reality is, like, step back. Are the reasons that you're being persecuted... Are they real reasons, like good reasons? Like, are they really good things for people to stand up and to raise as concerns? And why does anytime someone have a concern, do they have to be the enemy? And they got to be, they got to be working with Satan. They got to be deceived by the adversary. Why can't it just be a criticism and just be weighed on the valid, the validity of that criticism itself? Number eight, followers feel they can never be good enough. Again, these are warning signs of a potentially harmful or unsafe group or leader. Followers feel they can never be good enough. And I say, man, look at Mormonism. Mormonism adds guilt and shame in hundreds of ways. I I remember serving as a bishop and doing a lesson on grace. And I've mentioned this before. When I got done with that lesson, I shared grace in the Brad Wilcox kind of way. In the the later on, the Elder Uchtdorf, the gift of grace kind of way. And when I got done with this lesson, there were like seven or eight sisters in the room, 10 sisters in the room who were just bawling their eyes out. They were just crying because up until that moment, there had been this burden on their shoulders. They felt like they could never be good enough. There is so much focus on works righteousness and checking boxes and, and doing all these things perfectly. You got to be a mother. You got to be a father. You got to be a good home teacher, a good visit. You got to magnify your calling. You got to hold these family councils. You got to make sure you're, you're holding these meetings within your church callings. You got to make sure you're going out and serving. You got to make sure you're doing this. You got to make sure you're doing that. There's so much. There's so many lines in the sand of things you can't do. So many things that you're told you need to do. And, and you're given so many examples in church of people who are just doing it so well. I, I remember just not, not too recently, or I should say not too long ago, pretty recently, there was a lesson a couple of years ago, back when I was in Ohio. It was out of one of the presidents of the church book. It might have been, uh, might have been Joseph Fielding Smith or George Albert Smith, but the, I think it was Joseph Fielding Smith. And the point of the lesson was telling us how good of a father he was and how he did this and how he did that. And I can just, I raised my hand. I'm like, who else in this room feels guilty for not being as good as this guy was. 
and several people raised their hand and we proceeded to have a conversation about it. Like, instead of telling us how good leaders are, start showing us that these guys have flaws. Otherwise, you set a bar that is just way too high. And so when I asked, do the, do followers of our faith, do Mormons feel they can never be good enough? And on the surface, we may not say it, but you go into the wards and stakes and you talk to people and have real, authentic, valid conversations and people will fee- tell you they feel like they don't measure up. Number nine, the group or leader is always right. And that is throughout Mormonism. You have President Benson reiterating uh, George Albert Smith, reiterating Wilford Woodruff that, that the prophet can never lead the church astray. And yet I can show you documented instances where the prophet thought he was declaring the mind and will of God, declaring the doctrine of the church only to have later leaders or that leader himself be disavowed, to have later leaders disavow those previous leaders. We absolutely have leaders who have led the church astray. Sure, maybe the church got back on track. Maybe God's always in charge from a distance. Sure, we can argue all that. But if we're going to say these guys are prophets, seers, and revelators, and the Lord will never permit them to get serious things wrong, that's hogwash. Again, the group or leader is always right. We're told to follow the prophet. We sing it to our kids. Dissent is unwelcome. Opposition will not be tolerated. And strong opposing opinions are dealt with. Look at every single person who has spoke out publicly. Once they cross a certain line, once they're pushing too hard for us to come to grips with the negative things we do, they are dealt with. Number 10, the group or leader is the exclusive means of knowing truth or receiving validation. No other process of discovery is really acceptable or credible. And you see, while we give talks that say that one must go to the Holy Ghost to learn truth, man, we could pull out Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5, and we take it into people's homes and we say, look, by the power of the Holy Ghost, you can know the truth of all things. And that's beautiful. And so we write immediately, We go into people's homes and we say, look, go pray about this. Go and find out from your inner authority. Go find out from the Holy Ghost within you. But the question is, the moment that person actually joins the church, and at some point along the way, they raise their hand and go, "Uh, guys, I'm not really comfortable with what we're doing here. It is taught both publicly out loud as well as subliminally in our cultural way of handling things. That if your truth is different than the truth of someone higher up in authority or someone with more stewardship, then it's almost always you who is wrong. And even if you're not wrong, you got to be quiet about it. The truth you learn either needs to mesh with the words of leaders or your insight is the one that's wrong. We are never taught as Latter-day Saints to feel safe in holding a truth that those higher up disagree with. Think about it. You're told that anytime something happens in the church, go pray about it and go get your own answer. But we're never told what to do when that answer contradicts the answer of those higher up. I can tell you of hundreds of people who I have spoken to personally or had them send me emails where they say, look, man, this policy came out last November and I absolutely disagree with it. And yet there is no room publicly with in official channels of the church to say such a thing. Again, if you disagree, be silent. Otherwise, just reiterate what leadership is doing and saying. Those are the 10 
warning signs that you could be potentially involved with an unsafe or unhealthy group or leader. But that's not it. These articles point out 10 more warning signs regarding people involved in or with a potentially unsafe group or leader. In other words, these are what happens within the membership of those groups. Number one, extreme obsessiveness regarding the group or leader resulting in exclusion of almost every practical consideration. This idea that we are so enamored by our leadership that any kind of practical consideration coming from the bottom up is almost excluded to a T. And in this, and this being enamored with leaders, it also goes further than that. Like in the temple, we covenant to not speak ill of the Lord's anointed. And this covenant keeps most members from even approaching any kind of honest and authentic discussion of raising real concerns and criticisms of the system or the leaders that run it. Again, a warning sign of people involved with a potentially unsafe group or leader. And we do that. Number two, individual identity. The group, the leader, and or God as distinct and separate categories of existence become increasingly blurred. Instead, in the follower's mind, in the follower's mind, these identities become substantially and increasingly fused as that person's involvement with the group or leader continues and deepens. You see, Mormonism is more than a religion. It's a way of life. It is consuming. It is such a large part of your identity. Words like church or God, we can't figure out where one line stops and another one begins. When one says, I have a testimony of the gospel, a Orthodox Mormon almost unknowingly has connected the dots of gospel and church completely intertwined and together. There is little room to separate these things. It's a way of life. It's so consuming and it's such a large part of your identity. It is simply unpractical to question that. You see, the church, the church weaves all this together so strongly that it, it becomes unnatural to question your beliefs, to question those structures. The structure itself naturally inhibits a large section of its membership from feeling empowered or even aware of their of their ability to question. And there's such a risk involved in doing so. Number three, whenever the group or leader is criticized or questioned, it is characterized as persecution. I mean, again, ask yourself, is this an unhealthy trait? And if you say, yeah, it is. And then say, do we do that? And, and you can see right away early on in our history, right? The Mormon expositor is burned down. The expositor newspaper is burned down at the request of Joseph Smith and other leaders. Why? Because, because it's criticizing church leaders. Yeah, but those were all lies. No, they weren't. We now are almost to the point where we're acknowledging that the things the expositor wrote about actually were true. They were real, valid criticisms. How about the government with polygamy, right? We, we kind of point to the government and say, oh, they're trying to stop us from practicing polygamy. Well, have we ever asked ourselves, like, is there really good reasons to stop polygamy? And, and certainly if we look at these fundamentalist groups, if we look at the FLDS church and others, we can see the abuses that are occurring. And it's easy to say, yeah, but we didn't do that. And, and I say, sadly, yes, we did. When you look at Warren Jeff's group and you say, what are the atrocities there that I am not comfortable with? And I'm telling you to a T, you find those exact same behaviors, traits, and experiences 
in the first 70 years of our church. Maybe the government was right and maybe we were wrong. You've got uh, Elder Neil L. Anderson saying this, for instance. For example, the questions concerning the prophet Joseph Smith are not new. They have been hurled by his critics since this work began. To those of faith who, looking through the colored glasses of the 21st century, honestly question events or statements of the Prophet Joseph from nearly 200 years ago, may I share some friendly advice? For now, give Brother Joseph a break. In a future day, you will have 100 times more information than from all of today's search engines combined. And it will come from our all-knowing Father in heaven. And, and yet there's two problems with this kind of a quote. One is that there's this idea that, hey, these criticisms aren't new. These criticisms aren't new. And, and that almost somehow is supposed to cause us to diminish the validity or value that they have because they're not new. But, but what if like towards the end of like the civil rights era, you said, look, come on, we shouldn't change the law. Look, 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 these kinds of complaints are not new. These kinds of criticisms have been hurled around for decades upon decades upon decades. Like, like that alone doesn't have anything to do with the validity of the criticisms. You look at uh, Scientology, which has been around for 40 years, and people have been complaining about it being a cult and, and the negative, unhealthy behaviors that it practices since its beginning. But yeah, you know what? It, people have been saying those things for years. And then at the end, there's this idea that, look, give Brother Joseph a break. In some future day, we'll have all the information on the other side from a knowing God. Let's deal with it then. But that's a cop-out. And and if you just like take yourself out of your, your defensive Mormon shoes for a second, you can see it's a cop-out. You wouldn't use that excuse in any other practice in your life. You wouldn't say, look, I know that neighbor is being accused of molesting my kids, but look, give him a break. We'll find out in some future day that God will let us know whether that was really happening or not. We'll understand better then. Like, that's crap. If there is information today, right in the here and now, that brings into question the theology, the doctrine, the history, or the trust that I'm going to place in my church and in its leaders then I darn well better be given the space to think about and to ask about it in the here and now. I will give people breaks, but I'm only giving those breaks who deserve it. If you're hurting me, I have a right to ask about it. And I have a right to distance myself from that hurt. But fourth, first and foremost, I have a right to ask that hurt to stop. I have a right to ask any harm you do to stop. Again, to put off concerns into the next life, or to say that because a concern has been raised forever, it's really not a valid concern, is crap. And that kind of logic simply doesn't work. Oh, sure, it works with the masses who simply want to hold on to their comfortable beliefs, but it doesn't work with people who are thinking more deeply and people who have real, valid concerns. It doesn't work, and it's not working, and more and more people are leaving. We label, we label every critical question out. We label those anti-Mormon. Any source 
that is bringing our beliefs into question with serious, valid concerns, even if it does so with respect, is is anti-Mormon. We have to stop the rhetoric. We have to stop it. People need to have space to raise real concerns because maybe we're doing things that really are hurting others. And if we are, people have a right to bring that into question. Number four, again, the top 10 warning signs regarding people involved in or with a potentially unsafe group or leader. Number four, uncharacteristically stilted and seemingly programmed conversation and mannerisms, cloning of the group leader in personal behavior. I mean, think about that. Lessons are oversimplified. They seem to be intentionally designed to leave little room for critical thought or encouragement to question anything. The questions are laid out to ask for simple answers. Uh, if I just read my scriptures more, if I pray more, if I do more of my home teaching, like, like those are the answers to every question in our gospel discussions within class. Questions that are asked are meant to keep everyone on the same page, everyone giving simple answers and to keep all of us relatively in that same spot. We have a culture that is designed to make us feel like an us versus them, like we're out of the world and they're in the world and, and, and we've got the truth and we're better than we do. We do it so well. And, and we are in some ways like help to kind of fit a mold, right? Like, like you look across a ward on any Sunday and look at all the white shirts that are being worn. And yet we don't have anybody telling the men to wear a white shirt. And yet they're all doing it because there is this cultural subliminal feeling that my worthiness is measured by the color of the shirt that I wear. And we do that with a host of things. There are mechanisms in place to to help strong-minded sisters to keep quiet. There are mechanisms in place that when you have a valid concern, it is to hush you up. We have mechanisms in place that that keep those higher up in authority than you maintaining that authority in a way that does not allow you to voice serious concerns. Again, uncharacteristically stilted and seemingly programmed conversation and mannerisms Cloning of the group and leader in personal behavior. Look at the lines like the word of wisdom, tithing. You can name 50 other things that we do, some significant, some less significant. Certain instruments that you can play in the cult, in the chapel. Every chapel is on the same lesson. All the things that are similar from ward to ward. It's all meant to have us feel more comfortable in the group, to help us all look and feel and sound the same, and to not give a safe space for the one person on one side of the room and the person on the other side of the room to recognize that they're both struggling with the paradoxes and things not adding up. Number five, dependency upon the group or leader for problem solving solutions and definitions without meaningful reflective thought, a seeming inability to think independently or analyze situations without group or leader involvement. Think about that, right? You are told, you are taught to go to the bishop even if he is severely unqualified to solve your issue, right? You go in there because your marriage has an issue. You go in there because you have a pornography addiction. You go in there because um, you and your spouse are have some issue with your children. Whatever it is you go for, majority of the time, that person is unqualified 
to give any kind of counseling, therapy, psychiatric, psychology help that you need. And often, and man, bless their heart, those bishops and stake presidents for their service. But let's just be authentic. Like, if you don't know how to really help somebody in therapy, can you imagine the harm you can do? And it happens every day in the church when lay leaders overreach beyond their pay grade, when they overreach beyond their qualifications. And sure, sometimes inspired things happen. Sometimes incredibly positive things happen. But we also need to recognize that that bishop, because he's not trained in a whole host of things that he needs to deal with, that there's also a lot of harm to be done and a lot of damage being done. Raise your hand in conference. We already talked about this. You get sent back to your bishop or stake president. That is the official council now. It used to be you got to sit down with a general authority and voice your concern. Not anymore. Go see your bishop and stake president. And again, who are they going to show deference to? Are we, do you feel like we're given the safe space to, to think for ourselves, to think independently, to analyze situations? Are we able to solve problems on our own? Are we able to come up with solutions? Are we able to come up with definitions for how we're going to do things in our life? And if you're too different from the group, then you're called in by your bishop or stake president. If you're too far outside the box, if your concerns, man, if they just push a little too hard, you are called in by a bishop or stake president. Number six, hyperactivity centered on the group leader agenda, which seems to supersede any personal goals or individual interest, right? There are things we do within the church. It keeps us so busy and concentrated on church programs, on callings and assignments that you have little time for deeper faith development, little time for real educational study, for critical inquiry, for time to develop a a view of the universe where you can step back from being in this isolated, persecuted, complex little group of Mormons and to step back and see the beauty in people and in the world outside of your faith. Like to see just how good people are that are not Mormon. Like ask yourself, does the church focus on hyperactivity within it that concentrates on the group or leader agenda? I just talked to somebody last week who, who made mention that, that they were in a leadership position in the ward, that they had a calling where they were to oversee the youth and need to be there on Wednesday nights for mutual. And then this one Wednesday night, this, this, this person in leadership, they had a friend in town who wasn't going to, who hadn't been in town in 10 years and wasn't going to be in town again for another 10 years. And they were only in town for that evening. And this person went to their bishop and said, Bishop, uh, I need you to cover for me or find someone else or, you know, um, is it okay if I step away? One of my counselors will be there, but I won't be there. I, I've got this friend in town and I just really need to spend some time with her. And this bishop said, no, you got to be there. You, just, you accepted this call and you got to be there. And I get it. That that probably isn't the norm and that probably isn't the 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 uh, experience from from leader to leader who has a similar situation. But we certainly have things within our culture that set up for these kinds of things to happen. And certainly Mormonism, more than 98% of other groups and churches and institutions out there, certainly has what I would call hyperactivity centered on the group or leader agenda, which seems to supersede any personal goals or individual interest. Number seven, again, 10 signs, 10 warning signs regarding people involved in or with a potentially unsafe group. Number seven, dramatic loss of spontaneity and a sense of humor. 
right? Anything unusual or different is seen as threatening. Any discussion outside what is seen as safe or comfortable elicits defensiveness and one abruptly withdraws from the subject matter. There's, there's a lack of a sense of humor when it comes to like life and just what life happens and a dramatic loss of spontaneity. Number eight, increasing isolation from family and old friends unless they demonstrate an interest in the group or leader. How about temple worthiness being used in a sense to hold one hostage? Like, like you, you join the church, you have a testimony, you have kids, you raise your kids and all of a sudden your faith changes and you no longer think the church is what it claims to be. And yet now if you withdraw, you miss your children's weddings. If you withdraw, you miss participating in the ordinances of your child. In some ways you are held hostage. And there is, you know, there are cultural applications and practices and behaviors in our faith that isolate us from family and old friends. My mother and father are not members of the church. They couldn't go to the temple to see me and my wife get sealed. They couldn't see us get married. And at the time I thought, man, this is the right thing to do and sorry about them. And, and I'm telling you now, looking back, it's awful and it's atrocious. And we should never draw those kinds of lines. I've got, I've got family who will hardly speak to me on any kind of personal, just enjoyable conversation level because they now recognize that my beliefs in Mormonism are much, much different than theirs. I've had people unfollow me and I get it. Some of the things I say on Facebook are critical, but I've seen other people on Facebook get unfollowed for saying almost nothing. Like if you, if you dissent with any piece or part of Mormonism, you're making Orthodox Mormons so uncomfortable that they now will isolate themselves away from you and away from their friends. Number nine, anything the group or leader does can be justified no matter how harsh or harmful. Heck, look at the policy. We've already gotten word out there in that, in that space that not everybody is on board with this. And yet it is put across because this is leadership and we have done it. We're putting our foot down and we'll call it revelation if we have to. And this is it. This is, it is on. Anything the group or leader does can be justified no matter how harsh or harmful, right? And, and, and the group, right? The group, the membership, they look at this, this leadership and they say, well, if they're doing it, it must be right. When, when that policy first came out, the exact same people who were saying, no way, man, this is, this is fake. This isn't real. This is a hoax. Those exact same people, once they came face to face with realizing that it was real, they're the same people who say, ah, no, 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 that's a good reason. Protects the kids. No, no, it's definitely healthy. Definitely the right thing to do. Protects the children. How about old views that were once taught as doctrine? And now the new views decree these old views false and harmful, but there's no even public discussion or awareness of the smoke and mirrors that were used to kind of take your view, right? Off of the one hand to go see the other. It was a sleight of hand in those instances, a sleight of hand occurred and nobody stopped to acknowledge it or talk about it. Anything a group or leader does can be justified. Number 10, former followers are at best considered negative or worse evil and under bad influences. They cannot be trusted and personal contact is avoided. How about Elder Clayton recently telling, telling members at graduation to disconnect immediately from those who have strong views against the church. I could sit and read quotes from Mormon think on shunning. Go to Mormon think. 
It's a website made by those either still in the church or those who are ex-Mormons who are putting tons of quotes about troublesome um, aspects of the church onto a web page. And, and look at the quotes on shunning. There's like eight of them, right? And these are ones that every couple of years, every five years, you get this quote in Mormonism where somebody says something like, man, you, you, if somebody's doing something that falls outside of our beliefs, like get away from them. And outside of Uchtdorf, like name one time the church has validated that those who left or the concerns they raise are valid and that they were valid in doing so and that they are just as good of a human being as those who stay. Show me somebody who says that. They don't. Let me finish up with 10 signs of a safe group, a safe leader. Number one, a safe group or leader will answer your questions without becoming judgmental or punitive. And sadly, we say questions are honored. We give that lip service, but really tough questions are either avoided or obfuscated. No one in leadership has shown vulnerable vulnerability in conversations about criticisms. Oh, sure, on a surface level, we'll say it a little bit, but when we get down in the trenches on these issues... Leadership is publicly silent. Number two, a safe group or leader will disclose information such as finances and often offer independently audited financial statement regarding budget and expenses. Safe groups and leaders will tell you more than you want to know. Within our faith, that's not happening. Number three, a safe group or leader is often democratic, sharing decision-making and encouraging accountability and oversight. And I would ask, where does that exist at all in Mormonism? Number four, a safe group or leader may have disgruntled former followers, but will not vilify, excommunicate, and forbid others from associating with them. What are we afraid of, guys? Are the criticisms so valid that they are more convincing and reasonable than the narrative we tell each other? If not, what do we have to fear, right? We have truth on our side. Is Satan so deceptive that if truth and lies are in the room, that the Holy Ghost is powerless to help us? No, that's crazy. You, On one hand, you want to say, man, go get in tune with the Holy Ghost. If you have questions, go to God, and he'll give you answers. And the other hand, we say, no, we got to hide all the negative. we got to hide all the criticism. They're false. Don't worry about that. They're false. They're anti-Mormon. Don't worry about that. But we got to hide them from you. Otherwise, you'll be convinced of them. You'll be convinced of them. The Holy Ghost will be powerless. And I say that's bullcrap. You can't play both sides of that coin. you got to pick one. Number five, a safe group or leader will not have a paper trail of overwhelmingly negative records, books, articles, and statements about them. When you welcome criticism and validate the issues as just that, valid, then you take the power away from those who raise such concerns. I mean, give an example. What would a voice like John DeLynn in Mormon Stories have if the church had been transparent and allowed space for concerns and criticism from the beginning. He'd have no voice. He only has a voice because he is raising concerns. And when he started in the only safe space that was out there to talk about those things, you couldn't do that within church circles. That if we're transparent, that if we validate concerns, if we give a safe space for people to raise those concerns, then the power of the critic is gone. Number six, a safe group or leader will encourage family communication, community interaction, and existing friendships and not feel threatened. In other words, we feel so comfortable 
that we have a really good thing going here, that we think it is in, in everyone's best interest if you step outside of the shoes you walk in and go get to know other people. Get to know them. Get to know their lives. Get to know the positives and negatives going on with them. Serve with them. Walk with them. Talk with them. And there's no threat there for us. A safe group or leader will encourage family communication, community interaction, and existing friendships and not feel threatened. Again, what do we fear? Is Satan's lies so convincing that the Holy Ghost is powerless that we must avoid alternative perspectives? And it's true. Right? Don't read what the critic writes. Give Brother Joseph a break. Don't worry about those criticisms now. We'll find out the truth later. What do we fear, guys? What are we afraid of? Number seven, a safe group or leader will recognize reasonable boundaries and limitations with dealing with others. In other words, is it really appropriate that adult men interview girls about sexuality? Or is this an issue about you need to recognize the authority we have? What are reasonable boundaries? What are reasonable limitations when dealing with others? Is it possible that bishops really aren't the best person to counsel people on things that he's he's unqualified to assist with? Is it possible that men have no business interviewing young girls about sexuality? Is it possible that those in authority at the very here and now are exercising an authority unrighteously and causing abuses which need added accountability number eight a safe group or leader will encourage critical thinking individual autonomy and feelings of self-esteem again we give lip service to it we say questions are welcome bring your questions they're honored questions have always been good joseph smith had questions but in reality the opposite message is much louder and clearer Number nine, a safe group or leader will admit failings and mistakes and accept constructive criticism and advice. And yet we have our leaders saying that we do not offer apologies. And I ask, what checks and balances do we have that actually work and are reasonable? Reasonable. Not reasonable to to those in that power authority or those who... Uh, taken a vested interest in defending that power and authority. But I mean just at a common level where 50 Mormons and 50 non-Mormons got together in a room and said, what's the most reasonable way to have checks and balances in a system like this? Are the ones we have in place reasonable? Number 10, a safe group or leader will not be the only source of knowledge in learning, excluding everyone else, but value, he will value or the group will value dialogue and the free exchange of ideas. What room do we give for those down the ladder to be right and those up the ladder to be wrong? Brother Anderson, I get it. Can we give Joseph a break on some things? Absolutely. But he doesn't get a free pass. We don't get to label everybody anti-Mormon because their ideas are outside the narrative we want to tell ourselves. Every change we've made in our history, the printing of the gospel topic essays on LDS.org, the acknowledgement of Elder Ballard that gone are the days, the willingness of Elder Snow, the church historian, to say we need to be more transparent and we're trying to do so, the church history museum 
adding insights about other versions of Joseph Smith's first vision and discussion about Joseph Smith using a, a stone and a hat. The Enzyme article, which now for the first time talks about the seer stone. All of these things came because people have demanded that the narrative we tell is not accurate and have demanded that it be made more accurate. It's only when there's a critical voice. It's only when concerns are permitted to be raised or raised even without that permission that healthy changes are made. It's only because of organizations like Ordained Women that we now have made some small baby steps in sisters being able to give prayers in conference, sitting up on the stand with the brethren, and now being invited into meetings at the ward level, meetings that they weren't invited to before, and now told that they should have input into the things that we say and do and teach. I'm telling you, the only reason these changes have come is because there's been a critical voice. And so for anybody listening today, as I wrap this up, may I share this concluding thought. I love the church. I don't want to go, but I can't just be silent as we do things that are unhealthy, that are harmful, that do damage to others. To any Latter-day Saint listening who feels like, man, Bill Real is just too critical and he just needs to go away. Whether you are just a lay member in some ward or whether you are in the top leadership of the church, it's my prayer that you'll look at the things I've shared today and ask yourself, are we really a healthy and safe organization? Or do we have a lot of work to do to move past the behaviors that we have to come to a place where the restoration can be more beautiful, more safe, more healthy for those who are among its leadership? Can we do things that end people feeling like the only recourse they have is to take their life? Can we make things so beautiful that if people choose to leave, they're not looking back to complain? Can we take a serious look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are these warning signs, are they valid? And are we practicing those? And if we are, can we do something to fix them? I acknowledge that there are good leaders in the church, that there are good people who are doing the right thing in individual circumstances. But I also bear testimony that at large and in general within our culture and our institution, we have a lot of harmful practices that need to be addressed and need to be fixed. It's my prayer that we not only give Joseph a break when he deserves it, but that we give those who raise critical concerns a break when they raise a dissenting voice to point out things that we can do better and that we might look in the mirror and not be so defensive as to protect ourselves or to keep ourselves comfortable, but might we break our minds and hearts wide open with a willingness to accept constructive criticism for what it is and to make the necessary steps needed to be more like Zion. That's my prayer. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.